Welcome to episode three of the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, your host and guide for this nonprofit technology podcast. This episode features part one of a conversation between two of BlackBot's amazing software designers, as well as an interview with Dale Manning from the American Players Theater. We'll get to those stories in a minute, as I want to kick off this episode with an inside look at net advocacy. With the emergence of the social web, new power has been given to online groups of people. So when like-minded individuals band together, great things can happen. I had a chance to sit down with a local official who has been on the receiving end of a local nonprofit's advocacy campaign. Let's hear what she had to say. I have a special guest with me today, Charleston County Council Member Colleen Condon. Welcome to the podcast, Colleen. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for being here. I wanted to bring you on the cast today to share with our listeners a great example of how a local nonprofit's advocacy program influenced the council's legislation on an environmental issue. Before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about the Charleston County Council and what kind of legislation it works on? Sure. Charleston County Council, like many counties, deals with a multitude of issues. On on a meeting like last night, we dealt with road issues, traffic issues, you know, how to pay for the new jail with, uh, that's going to cost $100 million, how to deal with the landfill, zoning problems, and parks. So we're constantly dealing with a number of issues. And when you work as a local government elected official, most of us have a full-time job we're doing in addition to this. So the goal is to get as much information from the public about their feelings in a little amount of time as possible. That sounds very interesting. Now, what legislation was up for debate that prompted the Coastal Conservation League to get involved? Coastal Conservation League is the most active lobby that's involved in affecting what we do. A couple of the things that have come up in the last year include our zoning and land use regulations and Greenbelt Bank. We were looking at setting aside money from the half-cent sales tax to specifically fund road issues, but also to, to fund parks and to make sure we're conserving land across the county. With both of those, they spent time learning the issue. They the staff members certainly did their homework separate from uh, Net Community and CapWiz, but went out and made sure they knew the issues better than us, asked to meet with us. When it came down to actually taking a vote, you can imagine, while you hope for lots of public participation, there are many, many times we'll be talking about a zoning issue or how do we affect an overall zoning plan for Wadmore Island that we might get five or ten people that show up. On a big issue, we might have 10 or 50 people show up for a particular issue. And that's really a huge turnout. Well, instead, now what we're seeing with Coastal Conservation League is that we'll get 100-plus emails, 150 emails on a particular topic. So now where we were just getting a limited amount of feedback, it's very clear if we weigh the number of folks who are telling us they're for or against a particular proposition – Coastal Conservation League is having a huge effect on how we're addressing our green belts, looking at heritage floating zones, looking at our green belt board, looking at our green belt bank. I mean, it's fantastic use of technology and to influence uh, the world around us. Now, when as these emails are coming in, how do they sort of get from someone's inbox or you know wherever they land to actually sitting on a table and making a difference with the council? What I know that CCL has done, because I've gotten on their website to understand it, uh, I did not realize at first that it was a Blackboard software product until after it had started affecting us so much. What will happen if you sign up as a member of Coastal Conservation League and tell them the issues that interest you, you don't even have to go out and actively know about the issue being outstanding. They send you an email and say, you should know that Charleston County Council is about to vote on the future of Goat Island. Don't you want to have your say about Goat Island? And get an email where you simply click on there and fill out a form. 
what is really nice about it is that it's not, as I expected, one form set of emails, that everybody's email is exactly the same. If I look at the emails, um, what, what of course, NetCommunity and CapWiz do nicely together, and I'm not sure which does which part, but what the products that Coastal Conservation League has allows them to do is it says it, it automatically knows the people it wants to send it, this issue to, and then it, they usually have eight or ten talking points off on the side, and you click on the ones you want, and then you can retype it to be something that's more appropriate to what you want. So it means I might have 20 that are one paragraph long. I might have 20 that are five paragraph long and five very different paragraphs. So they're all different and look like unique emails. And that's great. That probably really makes a big difference on your end. So you know it's coming from real people with real passion. I know it's coming from real people. It's They're having to spend time looking at what actually matters to them. Right. That's great. Well, what advice would you have for a nonprofit being on this side of things that are thinking about starting an advocacy program? What advice would you give them as far as uh, things that they should do? Certainly getting us information fast is helpful, and email is one of the best ways to do it. When we're having meetings with a controversial topic, I might get 22 phone calls. Well, local government officials all have to have a full-time job, so we don't have the time to sit there for 22 phone calls. So instead, the way that I can get the most information on how people in my district or how people in the entire county think is by emails, letters, faxes. I'm happy to have any of those, but certainly emails are the easiest. So if an agency, you know, certainly... CCL happens to be one in Charleston County that's actively affecting cities, counties, and state state actions across South Carolina. Certainly an opposing group could do just the same thing, and we could get just as many emails that say, please protect our property rights, and I care more about the fact of what let me do what I want with my property sure. as opposed to protecting <laughs> it. It's a great way to get the message out. CCL, I think, is is a wonderful reference for anybody who's interested in the software to talk to because they've really made sure to research their information beforehand and give you every reason why why you might be against a certain proposal and say, we hope you, you, know, you consider this. These might be all the reasons you're against it and click the ones you are. It really means that I know actually what people are thinking and not just that they're opposed, but why they're opposed. It's a terrific way, and honestly, it's the way I prefer more than anything else to know what the general public thinks. Well, that's great information, and uh, I know you're really busy, Colleen, so I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Absolutely. Enjoy being with you, Chad. Great. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the Coastal Conservation League, you can visit their website at coastalconservationleague.org, and if you'd like to learn more about the Charleston City Council, you can visit their website at charlestoncounty.org. Moving on now, I'd like to go right into an amazing conversation I recorded between two of BlackBot's software designers, Rich Conti and Kaysen White. They've been designing our new BlackBot Enterprise CRM offering for a combined five years now and have lived and breathed the user experience that entire time. This conversation sheds some light not only on how the software was created, but how it will change the day-to-day lives of individuals and nonprofits around the world. Let's listen in. So, I mean... In general, one of the things we are trying to accomplish with BlackPod Enterprise CRM is to think about how people use the information that the application provides uh, in their day-to-day jobs and think about those different modes of application use and think about how we can bring them closer together. Uh, some examples might be different types of analysis in the system where we may be breaking down uh, fundraiser activity uh, along different uh, dimensions or campaign progress along different dimensions or doing different types of analysis of our uh, donor base and then think about what types of actions in the system that information might spur a user to take. Mm-hmm. 
I think there are a couple of main points of value that we get out of that. One is that just the sheer efficiency of being able to, to provide these links to the user. And rather than having your, your actions and your data, uh, your, your raw data as well as your analytical data all in different places in the system, be able to recognize and provide those links between those different areas and put them in one centralized place or, or provide them in one efficient location. And And then the other is to kind of help the user make those strategic decisions based on the data that they're seeing. So so you know help the user analyze what it is that they're seeing and what their next steps might be in order to improve their current situation or just to take actions on uh, the data that they're currently seeing. Yeah, I like to think of it as uh, something of a feedback loop and with systems in the past and you know in general applications are moving away from this direction, but in the past that loop's been been very wide and you know the system and how I use the system becomes if not an obstacle uh, in that loop it becomes something I have to kind of navigate as I navigate that loop and how that might might have manifested in an application uh, 10 or even five years ago is I may have a suite of reports available to me I run that report print it out in hard copy then kind of sit at my desk and, and pour through it and think about what insight am I trying to derive uh, derive from this analysis and this information and then uh, what action that it, that insight spurs me to take within the application then I go back into my sit down at, at my keyboard mode and go take that action in the application mm-hmm. And then perhaps run another report and see what that means. And and while at the end of the day I'm, I may get my work done, it's not as efficient because of that you know disconnected or, or that decoupled set of information from the tasks that that information may drive me to take. Yeah. And I think part of what's driving this is is not just a recognition on our part of the value, but just changing expectations among the customers and the users that the, the ability to store data is a given. I mean, you have to be able to do that very efficiently, get the data in there efficiently and accurately. But that ability to then pull the data out in a valuable format or in, in, a, in a valuable way and then take action on it, that's the real differentiator. And that's what, that's what really is going to bring value to an organization and set a particular product apart. Well, and that naturally leads us to think about, you know, if that is the goal to bring the information and, and, and the action or the task together, what contexts can we present this information in or in, in what um, different presentation manners can we you know, provide that insight that maybe is more in tune with making the decision or fits with, with my, my day-to-day workflow. A good example is thinking of you know, a particular piece of analysis maybe around some organizational uh, or operational metric around, say, you know, progress toward a campaign goal or you know, the number of major gift prospects a development officer should be managing at a given time and Think about where and when that information is useful. And sometimes that where and when isn't necessarily sitting at my keyboard right in front of uh, this particular application. Sure. You know, maybe it's while I'm working in other applications, being able to see a gauge somewhere on my desktop, you yeah. know, that, that kind of shows kind of quickly at a glance. Yep. You know, so I don't have to necessarily pour over numbers quickly at a glance. What's, what's my status in relation to this metric? Right. And so it only becomes relevant or I only need to then shift to that more detailed application mode when you know the, the the information or the status warrants it or, or makes it relevant. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, a lot of the users that, that are going to be working with this application, as you say, they're not sitting at their desk. They're out at meetings. They're in their cars. They're on the road. They're all over the place. And it really changes the way that we look at the core application. And, and we really need to, need to look at it in terms of a network of, of entry points, a network of access points, a network of, of interaction points with, with the application, whether that be through the desktop, through other desktop kind of widgets, as you say, through your cell phone, through, uh, through, through other mobile devices. You know, lots of different ways that you, can, that you can get information into as well as pull information out of the system that may be far more efficient for particular users and greatly increase the likelihood that they will use the software effectively rather than just forcing them to, to come to their desktop, log in, and use the, the one point of entry. And while they may not be in the position, you know, while using the, these other mediums or these other channels to actually take action on that information there, mm-hmm. it's more proactive from the sense that, you know, they don't need to go hunt for the information or go look to the application and, and think to, you know, go mine for that information within the application. The application is become more embedded into their environment, into their workflow through these different tools and is able to reach out to them a little bit more proactively, you know, for what may be very high level information, uh, may not be very detailed, may not be immediately actionable, but at least helps guide them as to when it's relevant for them to you go into that more detailed mode uh, mm-hmm. within the application. I think from our point of view as designers, it, it changes the definition of usability. It, it changes what usability means. You know, a, a particular interaction can be as usable as possible. We, we can really maximize the usability. But if the channel, if the context of that interaction is incorrect, is improper for a particular user, for a particular task, um, it, it, it doesn't make any difference at all. It's still not going to get used. So it, it broadens the scope of what we need to consider in terms of of designing our interactions. The the canonical example of that is the, the, the development officer, the major gift officer out on the road. You know, we, we can make a user interface or an application feature around entering call reports as usable as possible strictly from a sitting at a keyboard um, in front of the application um, standpoint and that still not be effective mm-hmm. because it is it is miscast perhaps in the mode of I'm sitting in front of my, you know, desktop, uh, sitting at my keyboard entering in this information. In reality, the environment for that action is I'm on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I have technology in my hands, it's, it's, it's via a PDA. And, you know, wanting to find out how we can capture that information in that proper context and, and you know, make it usable within that context, not just trying to, you know, do the best we can within a particular channel or within a particular context. Something that we, we've talked a lot about is when we do present that information, what, what's the best mode of presenting? You, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what's the best what's the best format in which to present? Wow, that's two smart guys talking about some high octane stuff. Be sure to join us next time for the second half of the conversation. In the meantime, let's kick off this episode's Getting to Know You segment. Melanie Malonis had a chance to speak with Dale Manning from the American Players Theater. Every year, more than 100,000 theater goers travel from all over the world to the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin to experience outdoor Shakespearean performances. In addition to the first-class work on stage, the theater's unique draw is its picturesque rural setting off the Wisconsin River. Founded in 1979, the theater has grown in popularity and is now among the most popular outdoor classical theaters in the country. Let's check it out. Today I'm joined by Dale Manning, 
American Players Theater's Information Systems Manager. Thanks for chatting with me today, Dale. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Now, Dale, I know you're preparing for your 2007 season, which starts in June. Can you give us a preview of what's in store for your patrons this year? I would be happy to. This season, we are presenting Shakespeare plays. I think the first one is Much Ado About Nothing, the hugely entertaining romantic comedy by the Bard. This hauntingly dramatic journey is filled with gripping plot twists, mistaken identities, and joyful reconciliation. The next play is Misalliance by George Bernard Shaw. Following that, The Merchant of Venice. Then we have The Night of the Iguana by Tennessee Williams. And then the last show that we'll be presenting this season, Timon of Athens, again, another Shakespeare. Well, that's an exciting lineup, Dale. And I know people not only travel from the Midwest to see the, uh, to visit the theater, but from all over the world. And with a population of about 1,600 people, Spring Green, Wisconsin, has not historically been a tourist destination, yet the theater has managed to put it on the map. With its popularity continuing to grow, what do you attribute your great success to? Well, I think we can attribute our success to the great plays, obviously, and also the the detail in in which the actors, the directors, and and, uh, down to the costumes and the props are are so authentic to the degree that once you're walking up the hill and you see the the, uh, amphitheater, you're taken back in time to that, you know, when Shakespeare first wrote those plays and presented them. I think that's what attracts people is it really does take them away from the everyday life, uh, you know, where everybody is, you know, so busy and, and it's everything's so hectic these days that now they can go out to this place in the middle of the woods where there is literally nothing surrounding us except the Wisconsin River and uh, sit back and enjoy being taken away from it all. And I know you've had a great success with the relaunch of your website, playinthewoods.org. What additional capabilities have you extended to your patrons this year? And can you tell us a little bit about how you're handling online ticket sales? Well, this is our second season with uh, Patron Edge Online. Uh, last season, we had a growth of online ticket sales going from what we could do previously with a web form. We had about 20 2 to 23% of our online sales uh, via our web form, we could never quite get it past that. So, of course, then we went to Patron Edge Online uh, because we felt very strongly that our patrons needed something better and, and that we could do something better for them. So when we implemented Patron Edge Online, we immediately saw a jump from that 23% to 38% in that first season. And we felt pretty good about that, but then we, we were like, okay, we can even... You know, we can do better. Uh, we uh, redeployed or re-implemented. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time on redesigning the website again for this season. That that first day of sales, when we first turned up the ticketing portion back in February for our preseason uh, ticket sales, we sold you know, over $50,000 worth of uh, tickets in that, in that first day, that first 24 hours. And our overall sales for that first campaign, the online portion of it went up to 48% of our total sales. Wow, that's great, Dale. And what other changes have you made to better serve your patrons this year? Well, other than the um, online piece, obviously we're 
uh, always trying to expand our, our phone systems. We're always trying to better train our uh, box office staff. We're always doing things on the grounds to provide a, a better experience for our patrons. We've always had picnic areas. We've always had uh, our shuttle to help people up the hill. Uh, we're always, again, providing better seating, better uh, lighting, better sound without changing the overall experience of the overall ambiance of the outdoor setting. And when did you implement the centralized system, and what benefits have you noticed from that? We did implement Razor's Edge back in 1997, and one of the goals even back then was to, at some point, have our ticketing system somehow intertwined. Uh, We didn't know at that time that we would ever have a truly integrated ticketing system with Razor's Edge, but that was always the goal, so that as we needed to do ticket analysis, donor analysis, creating mailing lists that we would have one central point to pull that information to help better serve our patrons. You know, Now that we have that over the last couple of years and we've gotten to know how both systems interact with each other, I've just created a couple of mailings already this season and it's definitely getting much easier every, every time that I go in and, and pull that information. And, and again, once you make it easier to get that information. It's it's, uh, easier for us to better serve and better look for ways to help our patrons in that we've never in the past done much in the way of email communications, and and this year we've been able to do that better. And so it's a a nicer way to get the information out to our patrons in a more timely fashion. And, of course, with the really nice brochures that we send out along with that email communications. We're trying to inform our patrons in the best way that we can about all the upcoming events that we have in our theater. And what's next for the theater, Dale? Well, I think uh, in the next uh, couple of years, what we're hoping to do is to provide uh, another venue. This uh, would be a, a smaller space, an indoor space. It would give our patrons another opportunity to see productions put on by some of our most talented actors in a, in a smaller, more comfortable, more cozy environment and, and out of the elements. Uh, not that we're getting away from the outdoor concept. We are just trying to add to the experience of people that want to come to our theater and experience the type of plays that we enjoy putting on for anybody that wants to come and enjoy them. And if people would like to get more information or plan a trip to the theater, where can they go? Well, they uh, obviously can go to our website, playinthewoods.org. We, again, are very proud of that website. We've been able to enhance it in a way that we've had many patrons either call us or email us or write us telling us how much they have enjoyed the experience of being able to purchase their their tickets either online or, or by calling the box office and and uh, speaking with our friendly uh, box office staff. They can also call the box office at uh, 608-588-2361 talk to uh, the people there. And all of our staff are dedicated to doing what's best for our patrons. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today, Dale, and I wish you success as your season launches next month. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm always enjoying uh, talking about not only our theater, but the fantastic software that BlackBot has presented to us with Patronage, Patronage Online, with Razor's Edge, and also Financial Edge. Thanks, Dale. Best of luck. Thank you very much, Melanie. 
Well, that does it for this edition of the podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Colleen Condon, Rich Conti, Kaysen White, Melanie Malonis, and Dale Manning. We'll be back in a couple weeks with part two of the Rich and Kaysen conversation, as well as some great internet fundraising info and a chat with Ken Meifert from the National Baseball Hall of Fame. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas about the show, so feel free to drop us a line at thebodcast at blackbod.com. Until next time, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to The Bodcast. Thank you.